This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, this is a visit that is certainly attracting worldwide attention. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi went ahead with meeting leaders in Taiwan despite warnings from China. Still has the support of many members of the U.S. government, even in Congress, even Republican members of Congress and senators. But how is this going over everywhere else? Let's find out. Talking more about this now with Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what has the reaction been? Because she's not just going there for a visit. She's being very public about meeting with the leaders and talking about it. Yeah, and, and I will point out that this was a very quick trip in that the speaker has already left Taiwan. This was kind of a whirlwind stop throughout the country. Uh, and it was widely received with uh, condemnation from Beijing and even a little bit of pushback from here in Washington at both the White House and the Pentagon, although ultimately they did not stand uh, in the speaker's way. But inside Taiwan, uh, open arms is what met the speaker, uh, whether it was from people on the street or from government leaders, uh, which is worth pointing out these are democratically elected leaders throughout uh, Taiwan, despite China saying that it owns the island or claims rights to the island. This was a big move for the United States, at least on the part of the speaker, to show that there is a support and push here for democracy. Right. And even in the United States, it seems like there is there a lot of support for this. I've certainly seen that case from from politicians. There was big support for this uh, because, look, this is a country that has kind of been uh, pushed in a direction of pushing back on uh, a growing superpower, that being China, whether it was from the former administration or the Biden administration, who's been really trying to reclaim some of that strength that Beijing has been showing over the last several years. And I think it was a remarkable moment yesterday to hear not only from members within the Republican Party, uh, like the Republican senator from Alaska, but also from Republican minority leadership with Mitch McConnell standing at the podium saying that he and about half of his conference were standing behind the speaker, saying that this was a, 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 a good move to be able to show that there is United States strength when it comes to allies throughout the region. Uh, and it's something that should be taken uh, you know, note of by China. This was remarkable and one of those rare moments, Simi, where Republicans and Democrats are on the same page. Yeah, I really noticed that. That was quite something. What has the reaction been like diplomatically? Well, I mean, if you're looking directly at Beijing, uh, it has been nothing shy of what we had expected for weeks. This was a an unannounced but widely expected trip, and 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 China really did push back uh, to say, look, if this trip goes forward, there is going to be an increase in military drills. There is going to be, uh, you know, this is fire that's being played with, and as China said, you know, you will perish by the fire. Uh, but outside of that, the allies around the region, from South Korea to Japan, uh, realistically an ally of Taiwan, an ally of the United States is not standing in the way of this, again, because there is this ongoing threat and fear that these these global superpowers, whether it's China, whether uh, it's Russia, uh, are trying to flex a muscle that may ultimately prove to be too weak uh, and seeing such broad global support and you know, it's it, it needs to be said over and over again, such broad bipartisan support in a country that's really been torn apart politically over the last couple of years. This is uh, and was a momentous and monumental trip. It really seemed that way. So she may have left now, but it sounds like China is still preparing to to do somewhat live fire military drills all around Taiwan. 
Yeah, and and it's expected to start up in uh, you know either a day or sometime within a day, and it's going to last four days. And these are military drills that are situated across the north part uh, of Taiwan, through the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait, and even to the south and to the east of the island, really trying to encircle a territory that China claims as its own as a way to say, "Look, we told you not to do this, and here you are now going against what we are calling for." I think from the experts that I've spoken to, at least over the last 24 hours, that China is not going to go as far as doing something that's going to put a direct threat on Taiwan. And it's solely because this is an election year uh, for Xi Jinping. He's trying to hold on to government to keep a third term and to expend the energies needed to push back on, you know, the visit by a U.S. leader could take away from the efforts that he needs to secure himself inside China. So this could be a way to show the strong arm, to show that an authoritarian can continue to be the leader of the country while making it look like the threat is simply more than a threat. Right. The other thing I found interesting about this, Reggie, politically, is that she had the support of other lawmakers, other senators, even Republican ones, as you pointed out there. But the executive branch, like the presidential branch, not as happy with this visit. No, there was there was mild pushback. I mean, look, the White House uh, said yesterday that the speaker was free to travel. She's an American. She can do what she wants. But the difference is this was an official business trip, not just by, you know, an ordinary lawmaker, but by somebody who is second in line to the presidency behind the vice president. So the White House feared that this could get in the way of what is already a, a struggling relationship between Beijing and Washington and that this could further, uh, you know, put fuel on a fire. The Pentagon was pushing back on this as well. But all Ultimately, tabs were kept on the security and safety of the speaker while she was on the island. They did not uh, prevent this trip from going forward. And there is reason for that. Should the White House have stepped in and canceled this trip last minute, it could have been used as propaganda in China to say, look at how weak America is. America is backing down and we are going to wave a flag of victory. So there were logistical reasons uh, and geopolitical reasons to not get in the way. That said, there still was, you know, a moment of, of anger within the White House because this is a rare time where the Speaker and the, the White House and the President, at least, are on the opposite side. All right, Reggie, thank you so much for that. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. So electric vehicle rebates in BC are changing. We were just talking about this with Rob Shaw this morning, and I'm wondering if these changes impact you. It's part of a new program that the government is aiming will hope to target the people who need the money more. So it means that if your household income is greater than $165,000 a year, you don't qualify for any provincial rebate for an electric vehicle. You still get the federal one, but you will not get the provincial one. So will this impact potentially car sales? Will people think, well, I was going to get that. Maybe I'm not going to now. I'll look for some other kind of vehicle. I'll get something cheaper. So we thought, let's talk about it. Joining us now is Blair Qualley, president and CEO of the New Car Dealers Association of BC. Blair, thanks for being here. Oh, good morning, Sima. Simi, thanks for having me. Well, what do you think about these changes? Well, I think, you know, anytime we can be increasing the rebate level for consumers, uh, which this has done, it's a good thing. Uh, you know, you've raised the question about the income testing and what impact that will have uh, going forward on, on the sales of vehicles. And I think we're all going to have to wait and see how that is. Uh, I know some folks think that there will be a reduction in the uptake of rebates and We'll, uh, we'll have to see if that gets proved out over the next while. How much of an incentive have these rebates been, Blair, for people to buy or check out electric vehicles? Uh, it's been huge. Uh, you know, the, the incentive program has been in place for a number of years now, and 
um, has made a huge difference uh, for consumers who want to put their toe in the water, as it were, around uh, you know trying out an electric vehicle. Price is always the big issue on, on most things, and, and in uh, vehicles it, it is for sure. And in this case, uh, you know, having a little extra money off the cost of the uh, purchase price right at uh, the dealership makes a, a big difference for folks. So are there a lot of electric vehicles available in a, in a more like mid-size, mid-price range these days? Well, the exciting thing now is, uh, you know, all the manufacturers uh, pretty much are coming out with something uh, that's electrified and, and in many cases, many, many models. Uh, there's lots of options uh, ranging from, you know, very uh, modestly priced vehicles uh, right up to, uh, you know, luxury uh, cars and and. Uh, Soon, uh, pickup trucks. We actually have seen some of the Ford F-150 Lightning uh, trucks come into the province in the last little while, and we look forward to seeing more and more of those over the coming months and years. You know, I was just talking to somebody about that the other day. Like, I think there's a lot of interest in electric or even hybrid pickup trucks here. Can we supply them? Like, what has supply been like? Well, that's the big challenge. Supply for everything, you know, whether it's gas-powered or electrified, is uh, is a challenge at the moment. Uh, you know, the, the the chip shortage has really been a, a huge issue and continues to be in in many places. And you know, it's going to be uh, for some folks uh, many many months uh, to wait for their new uh, electric vehicle and new gas vehicles as well. So have car dealers adapted, do you think, Blair, like just to the idea of the shortages must be incredibly difficult and challenging, but also to the idea that some people are now not going to want a gas-powered vehicle? Yeah, I mean, our, you know, our association and our members have, you know, sort of really leaned into on the EV side of things for over a decade now. Uh, you know, they've fully embraced this and worked with us in government to help uh, consumers uh, find their way to uh, checking out new technology, including electric vehicles. And you know, the challenge of uh, low inventory levels, uh, you know, dealers are pretty entrepreneurial, creative folks and have found ways to adjust their businesses uh, through all of this to, you know, make more used vehicles available uh, for sale for their customers if you can't find a new one on the lot. Um, and they're working really hard to try and make sure uh, there's an option, something for uh, uh, transportation needs of their customers. Do you think that the rebate was significant in terms of, of getting people interested in electric vehicles? Absolutely. Uh, you know, that really brought, made it a conversation around the kitchen table, you know, when they're, you know, that, that before gas prices, perhaps. Uh, but uh, yeah, the price, uh, you know, reduction of the, the rebates, you know, anybody that I talk to, says that was uh, that was really the, the key thing for them and also for a lot of folks uh, particularly low, lower mainland and, and maybe uh, other places uh, is the HOV lane access that you get uh, you can be a single driver in HOV lane if you're driving an electric so all of these things have been great incentives to get people to look at electric vehicles right so you're a little concerned about the impact this might have well, you know, we're, we're, we're optimistic that, you know, folks will still want to explore the option of an electric vehicle, even if there isn't an incentive at certain, you know, income levels. Uh, but it, it could make a difference. I mean, price is uh, the number one issue for everybody at all income levels, I think. And we'll, uh, we'll have to see over the coming months uh, what real impact it has. What are the supply issues like right now? So somebody wants to go in and order a new car. I'm, I'm still surprised if I drive by a car dealership and I see actually cars on the lot. Uh, what, mm-hmm. What's it like right now? Well, it's slowly improving. Uh, you know, manufacturers have been going like crazy trying to 
sort out the manufacturing supply chain issues. The chip issue is improving. Uh, some brands have uh, got more vehicles on the lots than others, but um, it, it's an improving process, but it's going to continue to be slow for a while. Uh, if you go and order a vehicle today, depending on what it is, uh, you could you know, be waiting a few months uh, or several months. I know the other concern for people who consider electric vehicles is the infrastructure. And this is something that you, you've driven all over the province with an electric vehicle, Blair. How was it? Uh, it's terrific. It's much better now. Uh, you know, I've done it over the years at various times with various levels of charging infrastructure. And uh, recently, uh, you know, I did a trip up where I saw you actually in uh, Prince George uh, for the BC Chamber event. And uh, I have to say the trip was terrific. There was only one spot where uh, the chargers weren't working and they were uh, you know, uh, Petro-Canada chargers in, uh, in hope uh, that I gather they were waiting on parts for something to do with that. But other than that, uh, you know, all of BC Hydro and uh, Electrify Canada and other charging uh, facilities were all the way up were in perfect condition. And, uh, you know, yeah, you have to stop for you know, 20 minutes to half an hour to, to top up and then, then away you go. So you plan it in your trip to, you know, grab a snack and get out and stretch and carry on. So it is getting better out there. So there's other incentives, I guess, for people to still be interested potentially in, in, in getting an electric vehicle. Yeah, everything in the, in the whole area is improving and, and battery you know, strength has grown tremendously. So the range of uh, many vehicles uh, at all price points has gone up uh, quite significantly. So that combined with the, you know, the availability of charging infrastructure makes it uh, much more you know, plausible for folks to take a longer trip in an EV or across the province and you know, across several provinces if you wanted or down into the U.S. Wow, we'll see what happens. Blair, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Nice to chat, Simi. Yeah, nice to chat with you, too. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there's a lot more to come on this next story that we're talking about here. There's still a lot of questions, but here's what we know right now. We know that a lot of people were quite surprised yesterday to hear the CEO of BC Housing, Shane Ramsey, announced that he is retiring. He posted a letter on the organization's website, said that it all started to change for him back on May 7th because he said he watched police descend on Crab Park in Vancouver after a man was fatally stabbed there. He said his neighbor was knocked down by two people accused of the man's murder as they ran across the park. And he just listed these incidents that had made him think more about this. And and he talked about how out of the problem is beyond his scope of being able to deal with it. And he decided it was time to retire, spend more time with his children and his grandchildren. And I thought, wait a minute, this is somebody who has been, this is their work for the last 20 plus years. Did they not see what worked? What didn't work? Did they not have ideas about what might happen? Did they not see this coming? I have so many questions. Now, Shane Ramsey is not doing any interviews, but I thought, what kind of message is this sending to people in the community who work with those who are unhoused and, and are struggling to find solutions and what is the right thing to do? Joining us now is Guy Felicella, who's a harm reduction advocate, overcame drug addiction, talks a lot about helping people who are unhoused. Guy, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Simi. What did you think when you heard about this? Well, I think, you know, if, if somebody does feel the way they, they stated that they felt about it, then, you know, probably the best thing is is to definitely move on. I, I think, you know, the, the housing crisis is really, you know, complex in our our province but you know we just 
what we really need to look at is like having a solution because it's getting considerably uh, worse day by day. And obviously, you know, especially in the downtown east side, I mean, there's just, you know, not enough places for people to go or for people to to sleep at night. And so maybe maybe the solution is is uh, make an encampment, drop some portables there, connect it to health, showers, until we can actually um, get people the housing that they need. Because uh, a lot of the times as well as, you know, I was an outreach worker down there for years. And, you know, there's not too much transparency. I, I think there needs to be more transparency of like BC housing and the housing providers as well. Uh, especially, you know, some clients, you know, can't or won't go into specific buildings um, because they're actually deplorable. Um, so you have like, there's a lot of, a lot of issues to look at. Um but you definitely right. the solution right now is to give people a place where they can actually go. So it's taken at least off the hundred block in the downtown east side where people can set up and and have a, a place to have a shower, bathrooms, et cetera. But what does it say about our ability to solve this or tackle this if the person in charge says they're out of ideas? Well, I, I mean, you know, I can't speak for him, but. I have a lot of ideas, uh, you know, just like the one I stated, but I mean, you know, not to say that they didn't do or the province has, you know, they bought buildings, they've built modular housings, et cetera. Uh, but it's just not been enough. And, and I think, you know, this is the underlying issue of like leaving it for so long or not having all levels of government involved in actually solving it. Um, has really presented the challenges that are that are here today. I did notice, I, I saw a presentation from Finland and how they do it. They take the money out of the Lotto Corporation to house homeless people there. And I think it's in the like 89 to 90% of, of people in Finland are housed and they have the same uh, type of issues that we have. And uh, something like that maybe needs to be looked at, but we really need to actually focus on if that's not our one of, you know, housing is a human right. Like everybody in Canada should at least have a place to stay. Okay. So do you, is this perhaps a chance then to try some of these new ideas? Do you think? Yes, I definitely think, you know, the best thing to do is get some, you know, a new person in there with some, some innovative ideas, look across the world to what they've done, especially look at Finland. When I heard that presentation, I was, I was pretty amazed and, um, obviously, you, you know, pulling some funding out of uh, out of the BC Lotto maybe um, to to house homeless people uh, that would be that would be an option. But I think right now you have to like the solution is is you know you need a place for people to go, and if it's not on the streets, people don't have a place to go. So you have to build an encampment. The city or the province needs to build an encampment and allow people. Uh, to stay there, to have a specific spot so it's not spilled over on the street because I know that has some, many challenges not only for the community but for people that live there or trying to access the housing or right. going into their own places. But there needs to be a specific spot for people to go. Yeah, I wonder though, God, then isn't the concern about that is that it's going to become permanent if you do that? Well, if it's city, if it's city connected to health with showers, you, you have that while you're building something. Because I, I mean, look, like people, like some of the buildings, like really need renovations. And if the if the excuse is is that well, it's better to tear the buildings down, but that'll impact the uh, character of the neighborhood. Well, then keep the face, but 
start renovating because if that's our excuse not to do anything, we're going to have the same challenges because people won't go and live in specific buildings because they're deplorable. That is so true. You just illustrated exactly why we have so many challenges here too. Guy, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. How do we fix the housing situation for the homeless population here in BC? That is something that BC Housing has, you know, been tackling for many years. And now, of course, it's been very ramped up under this NDP government. But we heard yesterday in a surprise announcement that the CEO of BC Housing, Shane Ramsey, says he is retiring. So what's going on here? What what do we need to do to tackle this problem? What should happen next? Joel, joining us now is Mike Bernier, BC Liberal MLA and the official critic for housing. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So what do you think needs to happen here with BC Housing? Because clearly they need to find a, a new direction. Well, absolutely. Um, there's some challenges facing uh, not only BC housing, but municipalities as well, right across the province of British Columbia. Uh, we see this crisis right now, and, and we, we say affordability crisis, but really when you look at the housing uh, in general, especially affordable housing uh, across all spectrums, uh, there is a challenge. Um, we've seen at uh, BC housing over the last uh, couple of months, you know, when you see David Eby step in and basically have to remove the entire board uh, that he appointed originally. And now with Shane, after I think 26, 27 years, Shane's been there uh, at BC Housing. You know, I think it's fair to say there's there's challenges uh, delivering on the mandate and uh, and trying to achieve the goals the government has set for them. So what do you think about those goals then? Is there is there a problem there? Do we need to, would you change those goals? Well, I, I think really... When we look at some of the challenges at BC Housing, it's uh, their inability so far of delivering on the mandate. Now, we all agree that we need more housing. That's not a partisan issue. Where the challenge is, uh, when I talk about the mandate being delivered, is uh, when you have um, Minister Eby, who now sounds like he might end up being the premier of this province, you know, when he came out and said uh, in the first 10 years that they would build 114,000 affordable housing units. After year six, they're only at 7,000 opened and people living in them. Uh, that, that's a huge failure, and that's a huge uh, you know, black mark on BC Housing, who's been asked to deliver on this. Okay, so how, do we, how would you change it? Well, th- we definitely need a lot more uh, oversight, but also we have to set realistic goals and partnerships here because for, for putting all of the pressure on BC Housing, I don't believe that was uh, the right approach. And by that, I mean uh, government toted they were increasing the budget uh, for BC Housing to deliver uh, on on getting more affordable housing, but didn't give the supports, the resources that were needed in order to do that. So making flashy announcements is not going to work here. We need to roll up our sleeves, work together. And and uh, BC Housing, again, I think was uh, kind of thrown to the wolves. They were given a whole bunch of money, but not given a proper uh, guidance and mandate to deliver. Uh, we were just speaking with Guy Felicella, who has done a lot of work, you know, with the people who are unhoused mm-hmm. down there. And one of the things he suggested was that maybe we need to have an encampment for people. If we can't get them into a place, we need to provide a safe space for them somewhere. What do you think of that idea? Well, I know that that's a huge challenge, especially in places like downtown east side uh, in parts of Vancouver. I was just touring around that area last week and uh you know i have to say that the huge pressure and stresses that's having on 
on businesses, on communities, families, but also on the people who are unhoused. Uh, I mean, we need to do something collectively here. Uh, this is not going to be an easy fix. Nobody, I think, has ever said it, it will be, uh, but it has to be a joint effort. Uh, municipalities, again, are going to have to be part of the solution, uh, working with uh, our advocates and working with BC Housing and the government. And yeah, exactly, whether it's whether it's encampments or whether it's uh, more affordable housing, I mean, that's going to have to be a determination made by a large group of people, I think. Is it fair to say that maybe we need to try things that we've never tried before? Oh, absolutely, because what's been work- or what's been uh, happening for the last uh, decade, last six, seven years for sure, is not working. And we need to need to do better. We're, we're seeing the number of homeless people um, grow. We're seeing the number of uh, tent uh, communities uh, grow. We're seeing the, the number of people who are put in unsafe situations get worse. And that's right across, again, the spectrum, whether it's the housed or unhoused. Uh, communities are becoming uh, less safe. And, and, and we need to address this because it's getting out of hand. Well, listen, thanks very much for your time this morning. No, it's my pleasure. You take care.